Today's scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45, verses 20 through 25, which is on page 606 in your pew Bibles. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from the mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against me. In the Lord all the offspring of of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we open your word, uh, our desire right now this morning is to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we delight to sing your praises. We delight to bring our requests before you. Uh, We praise you that you want to hear from us. But Lord, uh, would we hear from you right now? And would your word sink deep into our hearts, give us a vision for who you are? Uh, Would it change our lives, Lord? Would it change our perspectives? And would it equip us to be faithful servants of you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have grown up um, around the church, the idea of foreign missions is probably not very foreign to you. Uh, from childhood, uh, many of us who, uh, even you know, in uh, different church traditions, we are we have memories of hearing from guest missionaries coming and talking about uh, the the work they're doing in exotic places that you know names that we can't pronounce and talking about crazy food and so on. And in talking about the beautiful work that God is doing around the globe. Uh, some of us have been inspired by the incredible stories of sacrifice that missionaries have made in the past. Think of Anne and Adoniram Judson, who are two of the very first American missionaries to be sent out uh, right here from Massachusetts in 1812 first foreign missionaries from America, both of whom gave their lives abroad to make the gospel known uh, in Burma, leaving a legacy of some 3,700 churches today. Uh, Or we think of Elizabeth Elliot. I grew up hearing her story of uh, how, you know, she just passed away this year, in fact, but uh, Elizabeth chose for the sake of the gospel to go and live among the tribe who murdered her husband and four friends, that they might come to know the Lord in Ecuador. And many of them did. And so we're inspired by these stories of sacrifice. And and of course, for some of us, these aren't just stories. These are memories. Because some of us here have spent time in the foreign missions field. Uh, Several decades of relationships and trials and victories, uh, serving abroad or, or even serving across culturally right here in the States, or maybe some of us, uh, many of us have perhaps been on a short-term missions trip 
to the ha- to Haiti or the Dominican Republic or something for a week or two, and we have some of those memories of what it's like. Uh, we have our mission trip souvenirs uh, tucked away somewhere or perhaps displayed, you know, prominently in our home, uh, dishes or uh, clothes or statues or weapons. That's always the best missionary souvenir you can bring home. What, uh, what other reason can you have for displaying a sword or like a studded club in your living room? It's like, what, what's that? Mission trip, you know. So, and of course, you know, Westgate here, global missions is kind of a big deal for us. Uh, roughly 35% of our giving as a church goes to global missions, to supporting 20 missionaries and eight agencies working around the globe. We host a week-long missions conference each year. Every week in your worship folder, we highlight a missionary. This morning you found in there the missionary prayer guide that we put out each month to help you pray for our missionaries. Uh, we give a lot of attention to it here. And a lot of us can probably quote Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And yet, so, so we're used to the idea of missions as something good and important and necessary. And yet the world around us, to the world around us, the notion of global missions has become increasingly suspect. Uh, the idea that someone could believe that their God is the only true God and that anyone who doesn't believe in or worship this God will go to hell and that we should therefore send people to foreign lands into native cultures and try to change the religious beliefs and practices of the people within those cultures. I mean, that is audacious at best, and it's downright imperialistic at worst. Uh, I mean, hasn't our pluralistic age that we live in taught us simply to live and let live? How arrogant to think that we would have the one true God. I mean, who are we to say something like that? And how bigoted uh, to impose the values of Western civilization on majority world cultures. Today, missions is seen, uh, and, and this is you know, affecting uh, viewpoints within the church as well, but it's seen as a kind of cultural imperialism. Uh, so think colonization. You know, we're familiar with the idea of colonization, so... The powerful empire in the West sends their envoys to spread the glory of Western civilization among the unenlightened savages and to appropriate their their natural resources for the good and glory of the empire. That's kind of the narrative of colonization. And So basically, think of the bad guys in Avatar or Dances with Wolves or The Last Samurai. It's kind of that. That picture. And of course, the difficulty with that is that there is some truth to some of those accusations, historically speaking. The spread of the gospel often went hand in hand with the spread of Western civilization during the 19th and 20th centuries. And some of that was good. Uh, The establishment of hospitals and orphanages and schools was almost exclusively the work of missionaries during that time frame. And yet, with the good news of Jesus, often came the good news of European culture. 
the proper way to eat and dress, uh, the right way to govern or to run your economy, the right way to worship God in this kind of building with a steeple on top and these kind of uncomfortable seats, singing these kinds of songs. And with it, often created a kind of perpetual dependence on the West and our benevolence for the gospel to go forward in foreign cultures. But today we know better, right? Uh, in fact, today we're taught from a young age that no one is actually right, uh, that no one is wrong, unless you think someone is wrong and then you're wrong. Our pluralistic age tells us that God, that all of the gods are really just the same. They're different roads up to the top of the same mountain. And so if there's any place for missions today, it should be primarily or even exclusively humanitarian. Like if we're going to do, we're, we're, let's think NGO type humanitarianism, more schools, more hospitals, more wells, but much less Jesus. That's, that's the view. And so what do we do with that? What do we make of, of this? Um, what we have long assumed to be a good and necessary part of the Christian faith, we're now told is optional at best and immoral at worst. Is global missions really the same thing as cultural imperialism? Uh, is it possible to separate the two of them? And what do we do with this? Great Commission, this missionary endeavor today. How do we chart our way forward? Well, like every question that we've sought to ask and wrestle through in this series, our goal this morning is to say, what does the gospel of Jesus have to say to global missions? How does the good news of Christ help us understand this topic and our way forward within it? And to do that, to answer that, we're looking at Isaiah 45 together. The prophet Isaiah lived and ministered uh, about the 8th century or so before Jesus Christ, during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, king of Judah. You might have seen Hezekiah's name in the news this week. Archaeologists discovered his royal seal in Jerusalem. It's pretty cool. Um, But that's the same Hezekiah that that Isaiah served uh, during his reign, and And Isaiah's book is one of the books most often quoted in the New Testament, um, largely because of how clearly Christ is seen to be fulfilling the promises and prophecies of Isaiah. But when Isaiah writes his prophetic letter, if you will, he writes it to a people surrounded by international crisis. Through most of his ministry, Judah was under constant threat of invasion, whether from her brother up north, the northern tribe, uh, the northern kingdom, or more ominously by Assyria in the northeast, who would eventually wipe out the northern kingdom and would do their best to try and do the same to Judah. But that's not the real problem that God sends Isaiah to deal with. It's not just the international insecurity God's ultimately concerned with. The problem is her national idolatry. That's what he wants to speak to. Judah, like her brother in the north, have been serving gods other than the Lord, other than Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, uh, or alongside of God. And the Lord uh, has something to say about that. 
consider this charge in Isaiah chapter 2. For you, God, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Israel was tempted to worship other gods instead of or alongside of their true God. And they were tempted, uh, like many today, to doubt whether God was even the one true God and whether he was worthy of their allegiance at all, uh, or at least exclusively, or whether it was okay to serve other gods alongside him, especially uh, for the sake of, you know, security and trade. There's just convenience in, in bringing a few of their idols into your temple. Well, one of the Lord's favorite ways to answer this temptation, to kind of add gods alongside of the Lord or completely replace him, one of his favorite ways in Isaiah to answer that temptation is to expose the emptiness and futility of the nation's false gods. He does this throughout the book, and he gets hilarious in, in some of the ways that he does it. Uh, he challenges those who make and trust idols because he wants Israel to see the true nature of what those idols really are over against who he really is as the one true God. And in our passage, he wants to show them specifically, in no uncertain terms, first, that the Lord alone is God, there is no other, Second, that he is a righteous God. And third, that he is a savior. That the Lord alone is God. He is a righteous God and he is a savior. And those are the three points that we'll be looking at. And if that's true, if there is no other God and if he's a righteous God and a savior, that has serious implications for global missions and the church's call. So let's look at Isaiah 45 together. Uh, he starts by asserting that the Lord alone is God. And to make this case, God, through the prophet Isaiah, summons his opponents to court. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. So if you're into courtroom dramas, you can imagine God right now kind of sitting down behind the bench, gavel in hand, and the bailiff stands up and says, all rise, and and the, the defendant is invited to come in. And the defendants here are the survivors of the nations, the nations that are nearby Judah who have so far survived the recent military campaigns that happen to be wiping out so many other nations around them, and are therefore to, tempted to think that perhaps maybe their God is actually something after all. I mean, we're still standing, aren't we? Maybe our gods are, are something. Uh, and those particular nations whose idols are a, are a threat to Judah's faith in God. And so God summons them to court. You who think your gods are something, let's talk. And the charges are read in the middle of verse 20. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. The indictment read is about the foolishness of their idolatry. He explicitly challenges whether their gods are real 
and accuses them of being unable to save the very people who worship them. And then in verse 21, he invites them to make their defense, to present evidence that their gods are in fact real and powerful. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Notice the repetition in in that verse. There is no other God beside me. There is none beside me. God is not exactly subtle about the point he's trying to make here to the nations and to Israel. In fact, he repeats that phrase in some form at least ten times in this chapter alone. There is no other God. But how do we know that he alone is God? Well, he asks the nations to present evidence to the contrary. If your gods are real, then show me how they predicted the events unfolding today like I did. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Of course, what events is he talking about? Uh, what, what, What is he referring to? We have to go back in the chapter to find that out. If you look back to the very first verse of chapter 45, verse 1, uh, this chapter in Isaiah is probably best known for containing a prediction. Uh, Not just that God would someday rescue Judah from captivity in Babylon, but by naming the king that he would use to return them to their land and rebuild that temple 150 years before that king was born. His name was Cyrus, king of Persia. And history confirms that what Isaiah foretells in the 8th century happens 200 years later. Cyrus comes and frees. Cyrus is the one who overtakes Babylon and allows the Jews to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. The prediction is so clear that those who question whether or not Scripture is actually from God or or can actually be predictive in any nature simply suggests there's no way Isaiah could have wrote this part. This part must have been written by a different prophet 200 years later because God can't predict or control the future, can he? Or can he? In fact, the whole point that he makes here is that you know he alone is God because he's the one who foretold this. Who has told it long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Go back and read about it. I said this would happen. It did. Can your gods do the same? God says to Cyrus earlier in chapter 45, verses 4 through 6, he says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Only the Lord is God. And he will not allow Israel to think that the gods of the nations are merely different sides to him or on equal standing with him. They are nothing. They are nothing. 
They are not to be worshipped, and to do so would be foolish. They have no knowledge, those who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God who cannot save. I mean, the Lord gets a little cheeky here. How can a block of wood save people when it can't even move by itself? This is the logic, friends. Work it out. You look at chapter 46, verse 7. He puts it this way. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it and set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. It's a block of wood. But the Lord says to his people in 46, 3 through 4, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to your gray hairs, I will carry you. You don't have to carry me around. I will carry you. I have made you and I will bear you. I will carry and I will save. The Lord alone is God. There is no other. This is his claim in Isaiah and throughout the Bible. Now, should we accept that claim? That he alone is God. That's a much longer conversation. And, you know, I, when it comes down to it, I don't think it's necessarily possible to prove scientifically or historically or some way or another logically that God exists. There's always an element of faith involved, always. But there are good reasons. There are good reasons. The fulfillment of prophecy is one of them. What God says he will do in the Old Testament, he did in and through Jesus. We can look back and we can see that. There are other reasons, like the historical reliability of Christ's resurrection, uh, the plausibility of the biblical story over against all other worldviews. The biblical story is the one story that really, truly makes sense of the world we live in, that uh, explains why it's so messed up and how something could ever put it back together and how to live in the meantime. It's the only one that really makes sense. But that's a longer conversation, and I would love to have it with you uh, if you're interested. But if this is true, if there is only one God, and it is the God of Israel who's made himself known through Christ, then this alone would be sufficient reason to preach the gospel to the nations. That if there really is a God, and it really is this God, then we should make that God known. But that's not all that this God wants us to know about him in this passage. Uh, Look again at the end of verse 21, the point that he's trying to prove with this little challenge. He says, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. It's not just that he's the only God. It's that he is a righteous God and he is a savior. He wants us to understand that as well. And both of those reinforce the goodness of and necessity of global missions today as well. So what does it mean that God is righteous? Um, Well, it means first that he is good, that he is not just the only God, not just the all-powerful God, not just the God who knows everything. He is a righteous God. He always does what is right. And he 
is committed to make right everything that's wrong. He's righteous. He's in the right. He's just. That means that our God is not a capricious or vindictive deity, unstable and insecure like the pagan gods of the ancient world. You never really knew where you stood with him. So you had to bring another sacrifice in case they were mad. And in case there's some other God that you didn't even know about, but you somehow offended, you better make an offering to him as well. I mean, it's interesting. There's this litany uh, from the ancient world of this uh, to a God that I, to an unknown God or to a God that I might have offended. And it's like these 50 things saying I'm sorry for something I might have done because life stinks right now and I must have made somebody mad. And you just never know where you're at. That's not the kind of God we see in Scripture. The Lord is a righteous God. And that's part of what sets him apart as uniquely worthy of our worship. Isaiah 5, 16, it says, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The Lord, the holy God, shows himself holy in righteousness. He's not capricious or vindictive like pagan gods or like our modern idols today. You know, you think of, if I'm going to serve money, and make that my God or sex or fame or whatever. You never know where you're at with those gods. And they're always asking for more sacrifices and more sacrifices. And they're never making good on their promises. That's not the kind of God we serve. We can trust our God to always do what is right and to make wrong, right everything that's wrong in this world. He shows no partiality. He can't be bribed. He doesn't play favorites with people based on their gender or the color of their skin, who they know, the size of their bank account, where they went to school. He will be faithful to make right everything that's wrong in the end. And therefore, he alone is worthy of our worship. But that's actually part of what's wrong with the world. One of the things that needs to be made right. The fact that he does not receive the worship, and the glory that he alone deserves. In fact, that's the main thing that's wrong with this world. That the allegiance and honor and glory that God alone deserves, we as a collective humanity have taken and given to something else, someone else. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. The reason this world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to is because God is not recognized universally and exclusively as our sovereign and glorious King. His character is not reflected. His law is not obeyed. His love is not enjoyed and shared. This, in fact, is the main reason that global missions exist. As John Piper has famously put it, missions exists because worship doesn't. The whole reason we need to make Christ known is that he would receive the worship and glory due his name, which is what's actually best for us. You know, uh, it might sound narcissistic of God to kind of demand that everybody acknowledge his glory and worthiness. Uh, Certainly, if any of us stood up and said, you know, kiss the ring, worship me, we would yeah, I'd be looking for another job if I if I did something like that. Uh, but but if you think about what what why is it okay? In fact, not just okay, but morally necessary for God to demand His glory and worship. Think about it in terms of love. 
If you love someone, you want what's best for them, right? You want to give what's best for them. Well, what better thing can God give his people than himself? Than to know him and be satisfied in him, to be secure in him, to uh, bathe in his love, to enjoy his glory. What better thing can God give to people than himself? Um, we think that love is making much of someone else. You know, I got to make much of them. In reality, love, if we really want what's best for someone, is helping them to make much of God. Because that's what's best for them. And so missions is really about love. If you want to boil it down. There's nothing more satisfying under heaven than to know and delight and worship God. Again, to quote Piper, the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. It's to find something truly worthy of our worship. And until that's true of the whole world, missions will be necessary. Missions will be necessary. Only when God's righteousness is universally acknowledged by all, the world will finally be put to rights. And God swears right here in our passage that this is exactly what he's going to do in the end. Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to make what is right. Make wrong what is right. Make right what is wrong. And I'm swearing on oath to do it. And here's what's going to make right everything that's wrong in the world in the end. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God will receive the glory due his name. And in that day, we will enjoy what is best for us. His glory, our good. But as J.I. Packer puts it, God will receive that glory either gladly now or grudgingly later. Every knee will bow. And therein lies the urgency of global missions. Because the Lord is righteous, idolatry and evil must be punished. Those who oppose him, those who are incensed or outraged at him, they will be put to shame. They, you can't take the glory God deserves and give it to something else and think that that's no big deal. That is an offense against heaven. And he is righteous and he must make right what's wrong. And so he must deal with that. Isaiah warns repeatedly throughout his book that there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. The very last verse of the book says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's a cheery ending to a book. But it's serious. It's serious. The Lord is a righteous God. His judgment is serious. Missions is necessary. But the message of missions is not merely that there is a fire coming. It's that there is a Savior who loves us and who has done 
all that is necessary to save us from that fire and to bring us back to God, our creator. And that's the last point he wants to make in this dispute, that the Lord is a savior. He alone is God. He is a righteous God, and he is a savior. He's a God who delivers, who rescues, who redeems. I mean, think about that. What grace is it that the one true God of the universe is not only righteous, he's also merciful. If that weren't true, this story would be going a completely different direction. But he is. He's merciful. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. And what follows that declaration there, uh, what we see in verse 22 is really one of the widest invitations to salvation in the entire Old Testament. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Think about the scope of that invitation. I mean, here you have Israel's God in Israel's scripture through Israel's prophet offering salvation, not just to Israel, but to all the ends of the earth, people from every nation. Here is a righteous God offering to do for the idolatrous nations what their idols can never do for them, to save them. That's amazing. And not merely from their enemies, but from the punishment they deserve for their sin. And he's the only God who can do that. For I am God, there is no other. And so how is this righteous God able to actually save sinners and still be righteous at the same time? Because if they're sinners, kind of by definition, they need to be judged, right? How can you be righteous and yet merciful? How can you deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners? Well, Isaiah was only ever able to hint at that answer. But he gives us some of the clearest hints in the Old Testament. Lawrence read one of them earlier this morning. The way God is able to save sinners is by raising up a servant. A servant who will take up Israel's calling and stand in Israel's place, not only to bring back the preserved of Israel, Isaiah 49.6, but also to be a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. A servant who is willing to give his life in exchange for those whom he is saving. Being offered like a lamb led to the slaughter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can a righteous God save sinners? By sending his son Jesus in our place. God's plan from the beginning of time was to redeem for himself a people from every nation on earth. And because Jesus, his eternal son, willingly paid the price of our redemption with his own blood, 
He is therefore worthy of our worship and allegiance. We have been bought with a price. As the heavenly chorus declares in in Revelation 5, Worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Again, he's bought us. He's paid the price, but he's not receiving the glory. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When the Moravian church, which was one of the earliest Protestant churches, um, began in Bohemia in the 1400s and what's uh, now the Czech Republic, when they sent, uh, in the 1700s, their first two missionaries to the Caribbean in order to live among the slaves on those islands and to love them and to share the gospel of Christ with them, uh, those missionaries were warned that they may actually have to sell themselves into slavery in order to get access to the slaves and preach the gospel to them. And they went anyway. And as they sailed away, one of them cried from the ship, May the Lamb receive the prize for His suffering. May the Lamb receive the prize for His suffering. Jesus is worthy of the nation's worship. And as long as people continue to give the glory He deserves to something else, then man will not be well served and God will not be properly honored. Missions, global missions, is is not about telling other people uh, how much better we are, how enlightened uh, or progressive we are. It's not about exporting Western forms or ideas, at least it shouldn't be. And if we're honest, we'll recognize that, that the center of the Christian world is no longer North America, it's the global South. And if we're humble, we'll recognize that we need to learn from and partner with our brothers and sisters around the globe. It's not just an America saving the world kind of thing. We need to repent of that idea. But missions is good and missions is necessary because it's all about pointing people to Jesus. It's sharing with others the very gospel message that we ourselves depend on because the Lord alone is God. There is no other. He is a righteous God who alone deserves our worship. And he is a savior who spent his own precious blood to buy us back. Paul says of Jesus, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Missions is good because Jesus is good. Missions is necessary because Jesus is necessary. And missions is worth it because Jesus is worth it. May the Lamb receive the prize for his suffering. Let's pray. Gracious Father, 
would you so move in our hearts? Would you so fill our hearts with the love of Christ and with a passion for his glory that we would be willing to follow the lamb wherever he goes, that we would be willing to lose everything to make your gospel known? Lord, forgive us for worshiping the the American dream instead of you. Forgive us for worrying more about physical safety than the eternal safety of the lost. Fill us with compassion and humility and love. Be with our own missionaries who are serving your kingdom around the globe at great cost to self. Encourage their hearts. Remind them why they're doing what they're doing, that the Lamb is worthy to receive his prize the affection of all nations. Strengthen them by your spirit. Keep them tethered to your word, faithful to your gospel. Strengthen us here to be faithful to the cause of your glory, whether that means we go, whether that means we send and give, and certainly it means that we pray. May the lamb receive the prize of his suffering, God. And Lord, as we think about your global vision, uh, we think of the unrest in the world around us. We think of the great need for the redeeming hope of Christ. We think of of the tragedy, uh, the flooding in India right now. Uh, We pray that you would bring protection to those families. And we praise you that that P.V. Joseph's daughter is safe from that, even though she's in that region. We think of the terror in Syria and Iraq. God, would you bring repentance? Would you bring repentance to those who think that they're serving you by taking the lives of others? Would you hijack their affections and replace them with affections for Christ? We think of the racial tensions that are here in America, and we pray, God, that you would bring repentance and reconciliation. Lord, whatever role we play in that, God, would you make it clear to us that we would repent and that we would lay our lives down for one another in love. And Lord, we pray this morning for Adam Thompson as he uh, is deployed this week to Iraq. God, would you protect him and be with him? Would you remind him of your love for him? Would you go before him? And Lord, we think of the needs among our congregation this morning uh, for the broken relationships that some of us live with, um, whether within our families or even within this flock. Uh, We pray for healing, reconciliation, repentance. Lord, for the financial struggles that some of us face, We pray for provision, for peace, and for the physical illness that some of us face, for healing, for comfort, for patience and hope. Pray for Wayne Griffith, for Mary Boy. Lord, there is no one like you. There is no other God. And we praise you that in your mercy you have made yourself known to us, not because we deserved it, but because of your love. May we so love others to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.